Hello and welcome to the EOIZ podcast, a conversation on foresight. My name is Florence Gaub and I'm the host of the show. And with me today, I have a special guest from the EDA, the European Defense Agency, Jean-François Riboche. He's a director of RTI, which stands for Research Technology and Innovation Director. And I have a co-host today as well. Welcome, Daniel Fjord, our defense editor. And of course, welcome, Jean-François. So we want to have a conversation today about foresight. The most basic question to you is, why is foresight important to defense innovation? Well, thank you. And hello, everyone. First, foresight offers um, a strategic perspective and framework in which to place uh, innovation in general and defense innovation in the specifics. We need the development of a broad vision of the long term and the relevant uncertainties, which can help to grasp issues and developments from a more content-based perspective without direct interference from present-day concerns and interests. In a nutshell, one uh, needs to think out of the box from time to time. So what would you say are the main challenges when it comes to foresight and defense innovation? Is it the long cycles? Is it the speed of innovation? What's the main issue here? One of the issues is that foresight is frequently misinterpreted as a way of predicting the future, which of course is probably wrong and would lead to uh, and should result in a clear picture of the main lines of development for 10, 20, even 30 years. Of course, it's not the case. The result of the exercise is more uh, multilateral, complex pictures of possible futures sometimes with the positive and comforting scenarios, but also dystopian or complex images of the, the future environment. So that's one of the challenges. Another challenge is, of course, that we work on expert-based knowledge, which can suffer from biases. We're human here. And then last, maybe in defense innovation, as in any innovation scheme, the main challenge is to translate these futures and scenarios into capabilities and actual thing that will be uh, developed and eventually fielded for the armed forces because that's the whole purpose of the process in the end. Which is very interesting because you mentioned, I think, very classical foresight challenges, which at first you would think, I would think anyway, technology is a little different, but at the end, you know, it's humans that invent technology and therefore the challenges are always the same. Yeah, and also we have to fight this human tendency to work in silos not on purpose, but people are focused on their day-to-day -day business. So it's a, also a way to reach a bit of the walls, have uh, different perspectives, and take the time to think about it. That's also very important. Yeah, and I guess before asking a more specific question, but it also uh, strikes me from your comments as well that maybe another challenge is actually the interface between human activity and technology, which It's not always clear sometimes in the sense that we're never really sure if humans really lead on strategy or whether it's technology that drives strategy as well. But I guess in defense, that's also something that you're quite used to, the interaction between, uh, I'm not sure if it's right to say man, but human, humankind and the machine. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's still human organizations. People that are in the, the technology area of defense are often sought to be uh, technology push uh, oriented, whether, of course, the people in the more at the end user part, the operational uh, users, they would like us to be as capability driven as possible. So that's also uh, to reconcile those bottom up and top down approaches is always an issue. So we rely on those classical tools of TechWatch workshops to identify those. But uh, as I said, they, they may end up uh, still uh, working in silos. So the global picture, time to think is really important. Yeah, that's great. And what really struck me and what I found interesting in, in preparing for our discussion today is actually that the EDA's work on technology and foresight 
even predates all of the documents that everyone is maybe still familiar with, the Global Strategy, uh, the Coordinated Annual Review on Defense, all of the acronyms that we know. But already in 2015, the agency was working already on technology and foresight. And so your activities predate a bit already what was going on. And partly the answer to that, of course, is that the EDA is a rather important body when it comes to capability development planning anyway. But I'm really wondering, this year in particular, I think especially the technology foresight exercise that you organized back in May, I was really wondering what was so special or what was so needed when you decided to put together an exercise? Because writing a study is one thing, but what did you hope to achieve from the exercise? What was it that you were looking for? First, as you mentioned, we have already tools for Technology Watch and had some studies on uh, foresight, which were uh, important. What triggered the, the need to think about foresight activity was the perspective of uh, updating the capability development plan and also to feed the strategic compass process. It's not yet decided if the capability development plan priorities will be updated, but you need to be prepared. That's also part of the foresight is to be prepared. Take the journey is, is the most, maybe the most important thing, even more important than the, the destination. So it was also based on the, the lessons learned with our participating member states and the exchange of best practices that we thought maybe it would be good to run such an exercise and uh, try to bring experts from different backgrounds, not only technological or technical, but economic, sociology, whoever was willing to participate outside Europe also, to give also a different perspective. The idea was really to provide this high-level, long-term vision on multiple possible future for defense, with, of course, a focus on the impact of technologies, then to inform all those coming activities. Maybe because of the pandemic. I understand that the exercise was also held online. So in a sense, there, there was already a kind of technology dimension there behind it. But I was very interested to hear you just now also talk about the types of people that you wanted around the table. And I guess also a few of the member states also have national innovation processes, which, of course, are also important in their own right. But from what you seem to tell us, the agency is also in a position of a kind of network hub for this type of, of work, maybe through exercises and these types of activities as well. Maybe a follow-on question as well, because you mentioned the capability development plan. And I think it's already quite striking reading the first report from the coordinated annual review last year, which already puts a number of opportunities, technology opportunities down as well. So I think Already you can see that technology is a very, uh, let's say, important dimension of the work of the EDA and for European defense more generally. But maybe to ask you a bit more about the methodology, when you decide to organize an exercise, what type of factors, especially for someone in your position, what are the most important factors, do you think? I mean, the type of people. You also mentioned getting people maybe outside of the box who are not normally in our community. But what other type of targets or features do you expect uh, when you're putting together the methodology on this? When you talk about people, we try to have some technology experts and also to connect uh, our in-house technology experts to the process. You need to have an in-house buy-in of the results and also to make sure they, they will make use of all this work. And of course, at the other end of the spectrum, we, we also wanted to have uh, some people with uh, at least operational experience. Because the end-user perspective here and in the military domain is really what makes a difference to a, another foresight exercise is that the field of application is really specific. We always say that in defense, but <laughs> I think it's still <laughs> the case. 
Then the methodology here we used, you can find it on our website also, is based on uh, uh, looking back at the past and also trying to uh, imagine some futures, which may seem natural for foresight, and through a process of iterative dialogues. Then there were two main steps. One we called divergent thinking, where it's really thinking out of the box, listening to different perspectives. We also uh, fueled the, the discussion with some scenarios or narratives, as well as we call them, for possible futures, because it's always difficult to start with a blank page. That's also where you need somebody to run the discussion, to make sure it starts somewhere. Then you get a lot of ideas from the participants. And then at some time, you have to refine, converge on what are the, the most important or most relevant opinion of the group, most relevant future visions that we should keep for the future. Of course, here, no big surprise at the time that we ended up talking about the role of artificial intelligence, the environmental factors, or the impact of biotechnologies, just to name a few that I think were in the end really high on the, the list of the topics that came out of the exercise. What I find very interesting about the exercise, when you read the narratives, as you call them, or scenarios, that there are stories to those of you listening. There are four stories, as I'm going to call them, or futures, tech utopia, business as usual, Darwinian games, and humanity versus the hungry beast. And they're actually real stories with individuals in it. And as you just said, it doesn't just cover technology or defense. Actually, in some instances, you really have to look for the technology. And I find that interesting because it means that it's very political, it's very comprehensive. When I think I, for my biased Perception, I thought, oh, yeah, it's probably just going to be all about robotics and quantum computing. But as you said, it's about climate change. It's about how humans will relate to the future, how things will be predictable or not, et cetera, et cetera. So that's surprising because I thought it was going to be mainly capability oriented, right? So you created here basically the starting point for your conversation. But how do you take it to the next level? So if you're looking at, I don't know, Darwinian games, how would you use that as a context when you think of technology? Just as you said, I think it was really uh, also to, to bring a wider context, wider perspective. It was also uh, complemented by the providing uh, to the groups of uh, weak signals using uh, the Joint Research Center tools to identify where the weak signals in, in technologies in general, so also that people could think about different solutions. And then through the, what we had called the, the convergence thinking, there was this discussion, I would say, on her, then what would be the, the technology drivers that come from taking into account all, all these elements? It should end up in uh, what we call technology themes that will be uh, an input for the capability development uh, plan update. Just to name one from the, the previous exercise, I think it was the battle of the narrative, for example. So you see it's really wide. It's not only technology, of course, you can think of AI, but it really links to how society works and what is the, the environment of the armed forces. You know that in the defense well, bubble, I think there's essentially two schools of thought when it comes to the future. Those that think that technology will define everything and the others that tend to say, well, it's the humans that define technology, which then defines everything. So from the scenarios, I, it almost feels like you're more in the second category, which is very human plus technology rather than just technology. I would say that maybe we're at, really at the crossroads. I'm really convinced if you use the innovation lingo, it's all about user experience. Well, in the military world, I prefer to say a user in the loop because of the, what the soldiers will do with the technology that matters. So that's why we are there. But then we are also at a time where emerging disruptive technologies, we see the investment and the importance of this line of work really coming on the forefront again. 
with hypersonics if you stay in the military domain, but all the digital transformation, which is more dual use or civilian led, is also there. So I would say a bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's actually even one line in there where robotics replace basically nobody has to work anymore. And, uh, and there's a sentence saying changing society as a whole. And then it kind of left us there. It reminded me of another product I've read, which was called Four Futures. Precisely imagining a future where none of us work and what do we do with our time then? That's a bigger question. Daniel, I know you had a question also on the strategic compass, I think. Yeah, yeah. But before that, I think it's also interesting because if you look at the work that the agency does, you only have to do a very quick glance at the website even to see that even, I don't know, in the last month or so, you've had work on additive manufacturing. So what goes into producing the goods that we use? But also, on the other hand, the EDA, as I understand it, have been responsible also for developing a, a kind of a taxonomy for artificial intelligence. And I'm not sure if you want to speak a little bit about that, but it strikes me as following on from what you said about maybe in defense, we're not actually sure if humans will be able to keep control of the system as it is. And I think you also referred to the fact earlier that, or maybe implied it, that sometimes the military themselves uh, maybe not necessarily open to the concept of innovation, maybe in the same way that, I don't know, other sectors are. Especially on the artificial intelligence front, I think that causes a huge challenge for us. The defense world can be seen as a bit conservative, but at the same time, taking risk is part of the military business. It's a paradox maybe of it. So a few principles that I think we cannot and should not derive from are um, accountability of the military operators, commanders. And we, this is really important when it comes to ethics of uh, using artificial intelligence or autonomous, so-called autonomous systems. There would always be a decision to use a system and with the full knowledge of what it will do. That's an important thing. So it's a matter of having the right people at the right time in the process, probably on the field. There is no more time to be <laughs> thinking about the possible future. You are into the action. But then this experience, the lessons learned from the operations, it's really the, the greatest value you can get in a foresight or innovation exercise. You need to get this feedback. Otherwise, it's really the, the theory. Then uh, the, the applicability of the solutions you can think of uh, may be uh, not, uh, not so good. But that's part of the challenge. Which is actually a funny thing about defense, because on one hand, you have these long development cycles of technology and even of military recruitment patterns, right? So today, you know, the soldier of the future, so you hire them, but by the time they're going to reach important ranks, it's going to take 10 years, 15 years. And at the same time, conflict is something that's so disruptive and sudden. So you have this very long view, but then very short view at the same time, which I guess that's why foresight is helpful. Yeah, and then on the technical side, in principle, you're, uh, it's also, uh, we all know the challenge here. In principle, open modular architecture are the Philosopher's stone to make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, that's just what you said. I mean, uh, submarines, planes, or the platform usually lasts for tens of years, but you have new subsystems uh, coming all the time, especially with the digital dimension that you need to integrate there because the young soldier won't wait for you. There. If you don't provide the solution, the answer to the requirement, they will find a way to do it. Sometimes not in such a good way. I mean, safety-wise or <laughs> budget-wise. Yeah, and I guess uh, maybe following on from that and Florence's question as well, but we're also faced a bit with the challenge that the disruptors today, maybe are not even in the defense sector, they happen to sometimes be more than likely in the civil domain or maybe even 
not just in business, but in research institutes, universities, etc. And I know already that the EDA, I mean, I've attended, fortunately attended a few of your high-level conferences on technology development, and I was always struck by the different type of stakeholders that are involved there. It's not actually a purely defense crowd. Is that also a feature increasingly of the agency's work of bringing in these different stakeholders, although keeping in mind what you said very importantly, who the end user is? It's really one of our objectives yeah, to reach out to a wider base, I would say, of um, solution suppliers, I would call them like that. And that means academia, research and technology organizations, people think of startups, the development model of startups and defense is really uh, a complex uh, issue, I would say. And I'm personally not convinced that startups should be pure defense players. And then in the end, you also need to uh, have those defense traditional players, but you have to uh, make sure they are innovative themselves and so I think it's uh, then um, a traditional innovation dilemma that you have to have the predator in the loop because you need to scale up at one point. And uh, as we already discussed, to integrate some of the, the innovations into the larger picture and legacy systems, and it must work. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I guess most people who are familiar with EU defense are now also thinking a lot about the strategic compass, which will be on the agenda at least for the next few months and next year. But I think in the strategic compass, the philosophy is a bit to think to 2030, so maybe over the whole decade, which may seem like a long time, but actually is very fast, I would say, in, in especially what Florent said about the lead times involved in developing technologies. And it seems to me, and you're very familiar with this yourself, of course, but it seems to me that the EU were caught between somewhat of a dilemma, which is, on the one hand, being confronted with some very real capability shortfalls that have been there for many years and which need to be filled. But on the other hand, and I guess more your focus at the agency as well, is making sure that the EU does not lose its technology edge over that uh, period, because I guess some of the assumptions that we're accepting these days is that we face much more strategic competition around the world, and the world has become a much darker place, if we can be very frank. How do you see the road to 2030, if we can call it this? How does that shape up in your mind? And also the compass as well is being held up as a big opportunity to reframe that. So maybe to share some of your thoughts on that time frame that we're having to deal with. I think one of our input was that Europe, in the face of the competition, especially need to master technologies and keep the technological edge. The state of play of the competition is that you have uh, quite larger actors who are able to focus their efforts in a way that civilian and military domains are uh, intertwined also. If you look at the US or China, I mean, it's very clear. I see it's black and white in, in their, on their strategies. And then the role of EDA here is to point that, of course, to help build the common picture and also to act as a pathfinder, I think. That's a built-in feature of our tools. And then to help our participating member states to take on collaborative opportunities and then to focus the effort. And I, uh, in the domain of technology, I really see this as a risk sharing venture with all the good sides of the risk sharing. If it doesn't work, well, you were not the only one investing. And if it works, you were there. <laughs> <laughs> all the member states know what happens and uh, can, uh, can share the experience. They will not do it on everything but there's an opportunity to do it and focus in some areas. 
then will it be on AI? Will it be on autonomous system? Will it be uh, on something else? Uh, this, I don't know. And we will see how the discussion goes. Can I ask you a bonus question? Since we're talking about technology and the future, what is your favorite science fiction film? That's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can say, name several if you prefer. Uh, yeah, I'll say a couple of them. Uh, I'm a Star Wars kid, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess Star Wars is, uh, is really good. I really like Blade Runner. Mm. Ah, yes. Mm. We're still waiting for the flying cars. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> sure, sure. We actually asked the people about science fiction movies and predictions there. Were there good things? Did they materialize in, uh, in or will they materialize? It's also helped in the exercise. In the foresight exercise? Yeah, yeah. You also yeah. asked them about science fiction? Yeah, yeah, we had a survey about films, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's super interesting. Yeah, because, of course, there is evidence that science fiction inspires technological innovation from Star Trek communicator, et cetera, et cetera. That makes perfect sense. And even, and sometimes like Facebook now, the metaverse, that's a term from a novel, snow crash. So that's why I asked the question because I find science fiction is not just fiction. It also shows what people can imagine the yeah, future yeah. to be. And there was an interesting discussion about whether science fiction drives the, <laughs> the, mm. the will to develop those <laughs> technologies or, or will it only reflect what's in the air, more or less, maybe in advance, but some others may just grab that uh, it might be possible at a time. It was really just one of the tricks or tools to also fuel the discussion. Oh, very interesting. Makes me wonder if next time when you organize the exercise, whether you should ask about computer games. You know, we're talking about different generations. Uh, I'm thinking <laughs> of my own and some of the storylines in some of the... Don't tell me Super Mario. <laughs> no, no, but you know, some of the war games that we play. I mean, the, it also is fascinating to think of the storylines and assumptions behind those as well. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. What's your favorite science fiction film, Daniel? That's a very good question. I mean, Star Wars obviously is, is very much up there, but I don't know. I, it, I'm maybe an odd creature because I'm not sci-fi really. That's not my, my line, but <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I know, but you may defense. question my ability for imagination afterwards, but, <laughs> um, but no, of course, Blade Runner, Star Wars, those types of films are there for sure. Thank you, Jean-Francois, for joining us today. Congratulations on your four narratives, future stories that are actually a little bit science fiction, I think also, but in a good way, in a policy-oriented way. And also thank you, Daniel, for being with me today. And thanks to you for listening to us. 